During the 2016 campaign, Donald Trump made a strong anti-crime case. He argued that high-crime communities needed more police, not fewer, and that murder had jumped dramatically in the wake of Barack Obama's soft-on-crime policies, Department of Justice targeting of police departments, and administration tolerance for anti-police riots in major cities across the country. The media critiqued Trump's specific claims. They claimed that he was exaggerating the rising crime problem in the wake of what Heather McDonald has called the Ferguson effect. But Trump's overall message was absolutely right. While the left claimed the crime rates were doing fine, had been dropping for decades, they neglected that murder rates rose in America's cities over the past couple of years after a sustained drop. And violent crime rates have risen in America's 30 biggest cities. Today, the Wall Street Journal reports, quote, Homicides rose in most big American cities in 2016, continuing a worrisome trend for police and criminologists that began last year, even as murder rates in most cities are nowhere near the levels of two years ago. Trump actually took crime seriously during the campaign. During the RNC, he stated, quote, decades of progress made in bringing down crime are now being reversed by this administration's rollback of criminal enforcement. This was smart strategy, as I said at the time. Clinton, by contrast, ran on the notion that mass incarceration was the big problem, that the system was implicitly biased, and that her husband's plans to lower crime, which were actually wildly successful, they had to be dismantled. No wonder she lost. Republicans ought to run on crime regularly across the country. That's how Republicans can get elected in places like California and New York. Remember Richard Reardon and Rudy Giuliani? Well, Trump did, and he did well in states that have seen unrest over policing and crime. Wisconsin, of course, he won, saw a riot in Milwaukee. Michigan has seen continuing controversy over crime in Detroit. Pennsylvania has seen high rates of crime in Philadelphia. It's telling that Trump isn't talking about one of Republicans' top legislative priorities before his election, criminal justice reform. That's good news, given that notions of mass prison release seem ill-founded in light of America's rising crime problem. Trump sees something a lot of other Republicans don't. Crime matters, and so does safety, and he's going to stand up against both. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Okay, so tons to get to today here on the Ben Shapiro Show. By the way, I am going to be hosting Mark Levin again this evening, so that should be a lot of fun. You're going to want to check that out. Before we go any further, have to say hello to our advertisers at Hint Water. Hint Water. So Hint Water is just, it's delicious stuff. You can go to hint.com slash Ben, and you get this pretty major discount. It's normally $24 for a variety pack, and it includes three bottles of Hint's four most popular flavors, which are pineapple, watermelon, crisp apple, and blackberry. And the great thing about Hint is that it has no calories, and it's not full of non-organic stuff. It, it actually is great for kids, and it tastes better than water. So water is kind of boring. You get tired of drinking it. It's why I've been drinking sparkling water for a long time, but sparkling water apparently isn't that great for your bones is what I've been hearing, actually. Uh, and Hint water is a different thing. It actually allows you to allows you to uh, enjoy uh, enjoy water without the calories and you get this this great taste of flavor and the flavors are really good for 15 bucks you can get the 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 variety pack at drinkhint.com slash ben that's drinkhint.com slash ben and you get that for 15 bucks instead of the normal 24 dollars give it a try your family is going to get addicted to it it really is great my wife loves it my kids love it i really enjoy it hint water drinkhint.com slash ben make sure you use the slash ben for both the discount and so that they know that we sent you okay so Lots going on here in the world. Usually there's a slowdown prior to, prior to Christmas, but the news seems to continue to be coming fast and furious, and most of the news seems to be that the left has lost, utterly lost its mind. They are absolutely crazy towns now. The latest evidence that the left have lost their minds, Trump derangement syndrome, now roams free across the nation. It's like the stand. Somebody says Trump, and then the next person says Trump. And eventually, they're all bleeding through their noses and keeling over. Trump derangement syndrome has taken over everything. The latest victim of Trump derangement syndrome are these crazy 
gay dudes um, uh, who, who decided to confront Ivanka Trump at an airport. Now, as somebody who's, you know, has a, a relative level of notoriety, I see a lot of people at airports who are, who are fans. Like the last few times I've been in an airport, I've seen people who are fans of the show, which is great. Uh, and there's sometimes people who disagree and come up and they're generally pretty civil about it. But, you know, it's it's in public places. It's not the time for you to start screaming at random people who you don't like politically. If I saw Barack Obama at the airport, I would not be tempted to walk up to Barack Obama and start screaming at him for his Iran deal. It just seems like a bad breach of, of kind of common sense protocol. Like there are plenty of good venues to confront Barack Obama. At the airport doesn't seem like one of them. It, it's amazing how basic civility has gone by the wayside. What happened is that the Internet has, has I think, created this feeling of incivility because you can hide behind anonymity even if your name's out there on the Internet. You're not actually speaking to someone face-to-face, so you can say whatever you want, and that allows people to say things they would never say in person. See, what, what differentiates me from a lot of other folks is pretty much everything I'd say on, I say on Twitter. I also say directly to human beings, but most of the things that get said on Twitter are things that people don't say directly to other human beings. But as the Internet culture becomes more pervasive, those lines start to get blurred. And so instead of people just acting like jackasses on Twitter and then in real life acting normally and civilly, it's bleeding over. So here's the story today. The story today is that this one guy uh, decided that he was going to accost Ivanka Trump on a JetBlue flight. So according to TMZ, Ivanka was leaving JFK. She was seated in the coach area of the plane. First of all, good for Ivanka Trump flying coach. Like, really, good, good for Ivanka Trump flying coach. That's, that's kind of a neat thing to see. And she doesn't look like glamorous Ivanka there. She looks like a normal lady, which is kind of cool. Um, and she's flying JetBlue coach. And uh, uh, by the way, contrary to common rumor put out by some of my political enemies, I always fly coach. Uh, Ivanka uh, is just sitting there with her kids and with her, with her husband. And uh, this guy rushes up to her and starts yelling, your father is ruining the country, and then starts ranting, why is she on our flight? She should be flying private. Because why? Why should she be flying private? Why is that necessary? She has to be banished to the private plane? Matthew Lasner uh, is the name of, the, of the, the guy's partner. He says, Ivanka and Jared at JFK T5 flying commercial. My husband chasing them down to harass them. Ben- hashtag banality of evil. Really? Banality of evil? Ivanka Trump, first of all, she's a Democrat. She probably agrees with you on half of your policies. But second of all, banality of evil actually is the idea that a normal person is capable of doing evil things. Well, it seems to me that a kind of evil thing is chasing down random people in the airport, naming where they are if they're, if they are, if they're prominent, and then cursing at them. That seems unpleasant. And, they, and I love the fact that Matthew Lasner, he actually says there, my husband chasing them down to harass them, not to speak with them, not to ask a question, to harass them. That is the entire goal here, is to harass Ivanka Trump and Jared for no apparent reason. And then afterward, he, this, this guy's partner got tossed off the flight, his husband, I guess, got tossed off the flight, and uh, I put that back up for one second, and, um, and, he, uh, and he then tweeted, Ivanka, just before JetBlue kicked us off our flight, when a fit of attendant, when a fit Flight attendant? Flight attendant. Overheard my husband expressing displeasure about flying with Trumps. And then he tweeted also, Ivanka and Jared on our flight. My husband expressed displeasure in a calm tone. JetBlue staff overheard and they kicked us off the plane. Well, that's not what witnesses were saying. Witnesses were saying that they were disruptive of the flight, that they were being jerks, uh, and, uh, and that they were just cursing at Ivanka for no reason or at least confronting and harassing Ivanka for no reason. And it's funny what the media run with. So the media, again, they complain about fake news, fake news this and fake news that. And then they run with a headline that says, these people are tossed from the plane after talking to Ivanka Trump. So they ignore the first tweet where they actually say the goal is to harass them. 
and they ignore the other people on the plane who say this was disruptive, and they just say, oh, it was just a talking to. It was just somebody talking to Ivanka Trump. Really, really gross stuff. And again, demonstrative of the fact that there are a lot of people who believe that, for the left, virtue signaling is more important than actual virtue. Virtue signaling trumps virtue. So signaling to all their friends on Twitter that they confronted Ivanka Trump, these people will be the toast of their cocktail party this evening. That's more, that's more important than them actually just being decent and, say, not confronting people in front of their children and yelling at them about their fathers, which is weird. By the way, this guy apparently was carrying his kid when he did it, too. So nothing, nothing like dragging your own child into it as well. And this is not uncommon. It's becoming a bigger and bigger thing. There's some guy named, uh, I guess they call him Monsieur Vogue. His, his name is André Leon Talley. And uh, Maureen Dowd wrote a piece about him. He is a, a famous designer, and he's been dressing Melania Trump for a long time. And, uh, and, Melania, and uh, Maureen Dowd interviewed this guy, and here's what she wrote. She wrote, I have flown here to see if Andre can shed some light on Melania, the sultry enigma of Trump world, the only reserved member of what is shaping up to be the most bellicose takeover in modern times. As everyone else rushes in to blow up the Capitol, as Ivanka shops for houses in Georgetown and office space at the White House, as headlines cascade about how Ivanka will be the real first lady, Melania has virtually disappeared. We see more of her doppelganger on Saturday Night Live than we do the real Slovenian Sphinx, who is hanging back in New York so her 10-year-old son Baron can finish the school year. And then the, uh, and then uh, she talks to, uh, to this guy, Andre, and Andre says that he doesn't want to dress Melania anymore. He's not interested in dressing Melania. He says, quote, you make the choice to be in Trumpland, or you make the choice to eject yourself from the horror of Trumpland. I've made my choice not to be part of Trumpland. So I guess that now it's okay. I'm, I'm glad to see that the left is now okay with refusing your services to people you don't want to serve. That's, that's good to know. So if you're a Christian baker, you're not allowed to say no to catering a same-sex wedding. But if you're a fashion designer, then you're definitely allowed to say no to Melania Trump for no reason other than you think her husband's kind of a douche. So that's, that's good to know that now they suddenly believe in free enterprise and your ability to pick your own clientele. That's, that's, a, that's a nice thing to, to be aware of. But second of all, again, it just shows sort of the pettiness of these folks. It's not because they have a moral principle. They're not going to dress people with whom they disagree. They dress people with whom they disagree all the time. I assume they have some clients who are Republicans and voted for Trump. But the idea is that he doesn't want his name linked with Melania Trump. Horror of horrors. She might be wearing one of his dresses. First of all, I just have a question. Is the left that vindictive? Really, truly, is the left that vindictive? If there is a right-wing fashion designer, I don't know if there are, if there is a right-wing fashion designer and that right-wing fashion designer dressed Michelle Obama, do you think that right world would go crazy? Would anybody, would any conservative go We've got to punish those people for dressing Michelle Obama. I really, really doubt it. I really doubt it. But apparently, these folks are so afraid of the left or so interested in virtue signaling that they decide that it's more important to virtue signal than to just act with, with decency and moderation. And again, not the, not the, only, not the only story like this. Anthony Bourdain, who runs this, this, the most overrated show on TV, Parts Unknown, He's a celebrity chef, and he goes around eating food in different parts of the world and pretending we're all friends. It's basically, it's a small world, except with food that you can't eat but looks good. Uh, and he goes around and does this show. He told the foodie-focused website Eater, he will never eat in restaurateur Alessandro Borgognini's, I guess that's how, Borgognini, B-O-R-G-O-G-N-O-N-E, you try it, new sushi restaurant at Trump's Hotel, adding he has utter and complete contempt for Borgognoni. And then he took a, a shot at another chef, David Burke, for taking over Jose Andres' planned restaurant at the hotel after Andres pulled out in protest of Trump's comments about Mexican immigrants. And now he's really, really angry with these two chefs because he thinks that their motivation is to get in good with the president and make money. 
Because that's never motivated anybody on the left to get in good with Obama and make money. Like Anthony Bourdain doing a show with Obama, that wasn't designed to get in good with Obama and make money. Heaven forbid. He was just doing it because he thought it would be, you know, really great TV. So the, the left is going nuts. They've decided they can't have any, anything to do with folks on the right. There's a story the other day that said that the, the person who is unfriending everybody on Facebook is Democratic women. Democratic women are really pissed, and if they see anybody who voted for Trump or is a Republican, they're unfriending them on Facebook, which gives the lie to this idea that it's your intolerant John Lithgow from Footloose uncle who is, who's the source of all the discomfort in your family. Honestly, I've never seen that. Maybe it exists, but I've never seen it. Maybe it's because I'm a minority in our extended family. We're Republicans and everybody else is a Democrat. But from where I sit, it seems precisely the opposite. It seems like most of the people at Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner who decide to make a trouble, it seems like those people are on the left and they want the fight because it makes them feel good. It makes them feel morally superior. Okay, so if they can't come up with stories, so, so how do they justify this sort of behavior? How does the left justify this sort of behavior, saying that, it's okay to treat people this way, to confront Ivanka Trump on a flight. How do, they, how do they make themselves feel better for doing that? Well, they simply say that they're just hitting first, right? They're, they're, they're trying to retaliate for the evils and the intolerance of people on the Trump side of the aisle. And that's why we've seen this spate of hoaxes. There's been this big spate of hoaxes. So, for example, uh, there's this story that came out yesterday. Um, th- there was a Mississippi church that was burned, and somebody spray-painted on the side of it, Vote Trump. And uh, here's a picture of what that church looks like. Uh, so it's burned out, obviously, and it, somebody spray-painted vote Trump on it. And the media, if you recall, made a huge deal out of this. Oh, my goodness, must have been some crazy Trump, Trump voter who was trying to intimidate this historically black church. According to the Associated Press, quote, A Mississippi man with a prior criminal record was arrested Wednesday in the burning of an African-American church that was spray-painted with the words, Vote Trump. And the church's bishop said the man is a member of the congregation. Mm-hmm. The state fire marshal said investigators do not believe the fire was politically motivated, but there are signs it may have been done to appear that way. Andrew McClinton, 45, of Leland, Mississippi, is scheduled to make his initial court appearance. He's charged with first-degree arson in a place of worship, according to the Mississippi Department of Public Safety. McClinton, by the way, is a member of the church. He is also black. So everybody was saying that it had to be some white Trump supporter who burned out this church because, as we all know, Trump supporters are evil racists, and therefore... We have to ensure that we have to we have to crack down on the Trump people and be mean to them. Except that was a hoax. Other hoaxes. So we now know that this uh, this story at University of Michigan, in which this girl claimed that in the days after Trump's victory, she was stalked by an intoxicated guy who ran up to her, forced her to take off her hijab, and threatened to light her on fire with a lighter if she didn't. That turns out that that was complete nonsense as well. Ann Arbor police say the whole attack was a sham, according to the Daily Caller. Police Lieutenant Matthew Liege announced that officers reviewed many hours of surveillance footage from the area where the supposed attack occurred. Not only were they unable to find any evidence of the attack, they were also unable to find any evidence the student was in the area at the time. The attack also had no eyewitnesses. So that, too, was a hoax. So hoaxing, hoaxing everywhere. And then there's this other hoax that's been getting all sorts of attention. Because here's the thing with the left. If the story's too good to check, they just run with it. So there's this, this Muslim YouTube hoax artist. I mean, that's what he does. He does hoaxes and pranks named Adam Saleh. And, uh, and Saleh yesterday released this video of himself on, Trump, uh, on, on Delta. And he was suggesting that he was thrown off the plane because his mom was talking to somebody in Arabic. Here's a little bit of the video he released. Please say this to Facebook and Twitter. Guys, we spoke a different language on the plane, and now we're getting kicked out. That's insane. Now we're getting kicked out. 
We're getting kicked out because we spoke a different language. Is it? Is, this is 2016. Crazy. 2016. Look, Delta Airlines are kicking us out. He claimed that this was that this is what happened, and now it's turning out that the evidence tends to suggest that this was not true. He's a professional hoaxer. This is you know he 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 made headlines a few years ago, if you remember, by claiming that he squeezed into a tiny suitcase and flew in the baggage hold from Melbourne to Sydney. And that, of course, turned out to be absolute nonsense. He's done this. Apparently, he tried to pull the same prank on a different airline. Uh, this is, uh, I guess reports are out today that he was trying to pull this prank on a different airline earlier. And the entire media ran with it. The entire media suggested that, that Delta had thrown him off the flight because he was speaking Arabic or his mom was speaking Arabic. Passengers on the plane, they say that this is nonsense. They say that, they, that the, he was kicked off the plane for other reasons. Uh, apparently... Uh, the, apparently, one of the passengers says that this is not correct. So, according to a witness, quote, I was sat two seats away from the internet prankster and his friend. Neither of them was on any phone call. I could hear them talking in plain American English. The YouTube guy was trying to get his friend to shout something in Arabic, which he did a total of four times. He shouted across the plane, and the first two times I thought he was shouting maybe a friend or something. A couple of passengers after the second time said they were making themselves and their young children uncomfortable, and could they shut up? They told her to shut up, and then he shouted again. They were filming people's reactions on their phone, I assume for some comedy YouTube video, but they were made to delete it. Delta said in a statement, It appears the customers who were removed sought to disrupt the cabin with provocative behavior, including shouting. This type of conduct is not welcome on any Delta flight. While one, according to the media reports, is a known prankster who was video recorded and encouraged by his traveling companion, what is paramount to Delta is the safety and comfort of our passengers and employees. It is clear these individuals sought to violate that priority. And Saleh then claimed that what they did was wrong and we deserve to speak up about this. He said, yes, we're pranksters, and it sounds like the boy who cried wolf, but today you can clearly see it's as real as it gets. Well, no, I can't. No, I can't. I mean, where's the rest of the video? Why does the video start with them being removed from the plane? They're YouTube pranksters. Why is it that half these videos start after the incident, and then the media takes the account as though it was totally cool? They take the account as though it's totally and absolutely relevant and, and true? That's the fake news. That's, that's the real fake news. Well, we have to break here for a second. Say hello to our advertisers over at CISO.com. So if you are really into comedy, and this has been a pretty dark year in a lot of ways, although I think it's ending well. If, you want, if you're very into comedy and you want to watch as much comedy as you can over the Christmas break, you need to go to CISO.com and subscribe for $3.99 a month. It is fantastic. All the catalog of all the old comedies. Uh, they've got full catalog of Monty Python, of, uh, of The Office, the British version, they have classics like 30 Rock and Parks and Rec. I'm a big Parks and Rec fan. Um, and Saved by the Bell. I mean, they, they, they have, they have just, they, you have to check out their catalog. You can go to CISO.com and check it out. It really is great. They have, all sorts of, uh, they, they have all sorts of different genres as well, everything from the sketch and stand-up and improv to late-night comedy and mockumentaries. Uh, and uh, you can spend hours just watching the comedy here. CISO.com, $3.99 a month. My wife and I really enjoy it. They have a bunch of original series as well. Uh, they have one that actually makes fun of Anthony Bourdain. Which is, uh, which is great. <laughs> it's, it's called Hidden America with Jonah Ray. Anything that makes fun of Anthony Bourdain, I'm all in favor of, as you may have noticed. CISO.com, uh, and you make sure that you use promo code BEN. And if you do that, then they give you two free months. And so that is an awesome deal. CISO.com, promo code BEN, uh, $3.99 a month to subscribe. Okay, so, the, uh, so all these hoaxes have had the predictable effect, and that is they've created this impression that the country is deeply, deeply divided, when the truth is a lot of these stories are just not true. And it's driving people to do crazier and crazier things. Trump derangement syndrome is driven by actual fake news. I just gave you a bunch of examples of actual fake news 
and it's driving people to be crazy. Uh, here's another story like this. A group of artists have now come together demanding that Ivanka Trump remove their artwork from her New York City apartment. The artists who formed the Halt Action Group have initiated the Dear Ivanka Instagram campaign as a way to protest President-elect Donald Trump through his daughter. So they're, they're asking her to remove all the art from her apartment. Her answer should be, go screw yourself. I bought it. I own it. And you can't ask me to do anything with it. Really obnoxious stuff coming from the left. If you want to continue to polarize America along these lines, then please continue doing what you're doing. Well, as we continue over at DailyWire.com, we're going to continue over there. Unfortunately, this brings us to the end of our Facebook Live feed. We have a lot more to get to, including Donald Trump's response to the terror attacks. We're going to talk about what I think is actually the big story of the day, which is uh, Trump is now pushing executive action for tariffs, which is crazy towns. Uh, And we're going to get to a little bit of Bible talk a little bit later on here on the program, but you have to go to Daily Wire to do that. If you subscribe to Daily Wire, $8 a month, uh, then that will get you access to dailywire.com. You get to check out the rest of this podcast live. You get to be part of the mailbag. We're doing an episode tomorrow, so we'll do the mailbag tomorrow. Get in your questions now. You buy an annual subscription for $8 a month, and you get a free copy of my book, True Allegiance, which has been doing really well. You get a free signed copy of my book, True Allegiance. Lots of goodies coming in the Daily Wire store soon. Uh, so make sure that you subscribe now, dailywire.com, and join us, the biggest conservative podcast in the United States. So you know what, guys? It's been a little while since we've done some good Trump, bad Trump. Should we do a little bit of good Trump, bad Trump? Do we have the capacity to do good Trump, bad Trump? Yes. Yes, we do. Good Trump, bad Trump. Hit it. Good Trump, bad Trump. Which one will we get today? Uh, yes, good Trump, bad Trump, which has been the great discovery of 2016, I think, for, for a lot of people. Uh, we, we begin. Our story with good Trump. So Donald Trump's response to the the terror attacks in Berlin uh, has been pretty good. Here's here's what Donald Trump had to say about the terror attack in Berlin. You're you're at the attack in Berlin being against an attack against Christians. Well, who said that? When did when was that said? I think I, I believe you said it in a press release. Yeah. So wondering how this might affect. It's an attack on humanity. That's what it is. It's an attack on humanity. And it's got to be stopped. Thank you. It's an attack on humanity, and it has to be stopped. And a lot of his advisors are uh, are cracking down on. They're pointing out that the the it was an immigrant apparently who perf- who who actually perpetrated this attack in Berlin. Uh, one of his advisors, a guy named Sebastian Gorka, who's, a, who's sort of a terrorism expert and anti-terror expert, and he says that more more than half of the terrorist cases prosecuted in the United States involve people not born in the United States. The, the reality is that when you're coming from a war zone, unless we have the time to vet you with in-depth counterintelligence interrogations, we don't know who you are because Assad isn't going to give us the data to check who you are. As a result, it is impossible to verify exactly your intention. So ISIS has said we will use the refugee streams of the 400 plus terrorist cases that have been prosecuted in America in the last 15 years, more than half of them involved people who were not born in the United States, many of them who were immigrants or people who had refugee status. These are just the facts, Eric. Okay, and those are the facts, and I think that Trump is going to do a much better job than Obama has done of screening immigrants, ensuring that the people who come into the United States are vetted. It's something with which I fully agree, and good for Trump. That is, that is definitely good Trump. Now, on to bad Trump, unfortunately. I wish, honestly, folks, I wish that I could do just shows full of good Trump. But this is going to be a mixed bag, and, uh, and we are honest here. So it's time for some bad Trump. So 
Here is the bad, the, the big bad Trump news of the day. This is courtesy of John King of CNN. Quote, the Trump transition team is floating the possibility of an early executive action to impose tariffs on foreign imports. According to multiple sources, such a move would deliver on President-elect Donald Trump's America First campaign theme, but it's causing alarm among businesses and the pro-trade Republican establishment. The Trump transition team didn't immediately respond to a request for comment on the prospect of new tariffs. But a transition official said the team has discussed implementing a border adjustment tax measure under consideration by House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Kevin Brady, which would tax imports to spur U.S. manufacturing. So he now wants to use, apparently, the, uh, the I guess they're, they're debating uh, a 5% tariff on imports. They're saying that Reince Priebus is telling people that they, just through executive action, he wants a 5% tariff on imports. This is stupid economic policy. It's also stupid governmental policy. And I'm sick of watching Republicans sign off on stupid governmental and executive policy. They did it with Obama. There's no need to do it with Trump as well. So first, why this is stupid governmental policy. A tariff is a tax. It is a tax not just on importers, but on consumers, because you deserve to be able to buy a product at the best available price without anybody imposing between you and the person who's selling the product. It is none of the government's business how much I want to pay for a car. It is my business how much I want to pay for a car, and the government does not get to tax me in order to ship that money over to Detroit to maintain a manufacturing job in Detroit that can't be maintained otherwise. Okay, that is welfare. It is indirect welfare. It is immoral. It is illogical, economically speaking. Tariffs do not boost American industry. They don't. Okay, I can give you the entire history of the American auto industry. Tariffs are a temporary boost for the industry they seek to boost, and then they end up collapsing that industry. Even that industry, they end up collapsing from within. Because when you subsidize an industry, it gets fat and happy and inefficient, and then the minute that the subsidies are removed or the tariffs are removed, the industry just collapses. It just falls apart. And that's a big problem with tariffs. Second of all, if you're going to impose a tariff in order to keep American industry here, in order to force consumers to actually to actually buy American products, a five percent tariff actually doesn't do it. It just taxes me, right? It doesn't actually force, and it doesn't force an American business to not to outsource. It doesn't force a foreign business not to sell in the United States. It just means it increases my prices. It doesn't save jobs in any market in any reasonable way. Five percent is too low. If you actually want to protect the auto industry in the United States, for example, you need probably a much higher tariff in order to protect them from competition from Honda and from Toyota and from all the foreign producers that are making cars that people want to buy. Now, it's bad governmental policy because executive orders are a dangerous thing. Now, I, I know that people have we've fallen into this trap in, in America of ignoring the meaning of words. Words don't have any meaning anymore. So when you say executive order, people just say, oh, that's something the president does. Right? It's just something the president does. It's just a piece of paper, and he signs it, and then it happens, and then it's magical, and everything's great. Okay, the purpose of an executive order is to execute. It's to execute. Okay, The executive branch is not about the president doing whatever he wants. That's the legislative branch. The legislative branch gets to legislate. This is the purpose of the founders. The founders purposely designed a system that is full of gridlock. Everybody in the United States likes to focus deeply and, and interminably on the Bill of Rights. They love the Bill of Rights. Sure, the Bill of Rights is fine. The Bill of Rights is not the important part of the Constitution. It isn't. The Bill of Rights, in fact, the, the Anti-Federalists, as I've mentioned before, but I think I screwed up the, I think I reversed it, the Anti-Federalists insisted on the Bill of Rights, but the Federalists actually didn't want the Bill of Rights. The reason the Federalists didn't want the Bill of Rights is they were afraid of what was going to happen when people thought that was an exclusive list, meaning that if it says the right to press or the right to free speech, but it doesn't say the right to marry, for example, then people are going to think those are the only rights. That turns out to be a pretty well-founded concern 
to the federal. But the real the, the real protections were never in the Bill of Rights, right? Every country on earth that has a constitution has some sort of Bill of Rights. South African Constitution has a Bill of Rights, and those rights include the right to housing, and they include the right to health care. And yet, South Africa is a pit. You can have the right to something. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to materialize for you. The important part of the Constitution of the United States is the first 4,400 words or so, right? All of the stuff that's not the Bill of Rights, the actual structural Constitution. And the structural Constitution was designed with the idea in mind they're going to have checks and balances between the branches, and that's going to prevent anything from getting done. It's a purposefully gridlocked system. The founder said, we're going to gridlock unless there's tremendous cohesiveness, unless something that everybody wants to do happens, there's going to be gridlock. You're going to need a lot of people to agree in order to get anything done. And that's good. Because, I mean, think about, think about you know, your own community, just your local community. You wouldn't want your local community to have a dictator because that person would do things you don't personally like. What you would like is that everybody leaves each other alone except if there's a broad consensus that we have to do something. That's how the founders built the system. The founders built the system nationally just for that. That was the purpose. Okay, well... Executive, so, so the idea here was that the legislature makes the laws and the executive, their job is to execute the laws. Right? They get to veto and that's the check, but they, get to, they have to execute them. They don't get to reinterpret them. They don't get to do whatever. They, they don't get to create an administrative state. They don't get to have administrative agencies that are designed fully to make their own law. That's not what the executive branch was supposed to do. Well, so what were executive orders? Originally, executive orders were just supposed to fill in the blanks. So Congress says, we need to build a post office in Podunk. And the president signs an executive order, and he says, the office in Podunk is to be built with bricks. Right? The executive order is supposed to fill in gaps that are left by the legislature, right? fill in details left by the legislature, in order to facilitate the execution of the law the legislature just passed. That's the goal of an executive order. It's not something that's supposed to be just out of left field, president feels like doing it, boom, signs an executive order, and now it's the law. That's called dictatorship. We didn't like it when Obama did it. I mean, not all executive orders are created equal. A lot of executive orders are areas in which the president is basically filling in gaps. But there are some executive orders that really are not. So executive orders like DACA and DAPA, where the president of the United States just decides to completely overthrow American immigration policy and suggest that these people should be given legal status, you know, that is not legal. And it's not right. That's not what the executive branch is for. Well, now what Trump is talking about, that, that these tariffs are not... You know, this is the problem with giving the president fast-track trade authority, but typically speaking, the president does not have the ability to unilaterally levy tariffs. That's Congress's business. Why should the president be able to unilaterally levy tariffs with an executive order? We used to be wary of this sort of thing. I understand that now Republicans are all hot and bothered and excited and you know, just dripping all over themselves about the fact that they've got somebody they think they like in power, but... That doesn't change the fact that this is not how the power structure is supposed to work. So you have two problems here. One is the tariffs and one is the executive order. And the Republicans seem unwilling to stand up on either of these things. Tim Alberta at National Review, he reported yesterday that on the infrastructure plan, Republicans were considering a plan that would allow 50% of the infrastructure plan not to be paid for. So they'll raise the deficit. Does that sound like good policy to you? Would they have allowed Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton to get away with anything like that? Of course not. Of course not. But this is, this is the danger, right? You like Trump, you want Trump to do well, and so therefore you pretend that tariffs are okay. Tariffs are not okay. Tariffs are really bad policy. Tariffs, in fact, are, are they're, they're quite terrible policy, actually. And, and as I say, if you, here's a brief history, give you a brief history of the American auto industry so you understand the tariffs that are even designed to help certain industries actually end up hurting those industries over time. 
So in the, in, when it first started, the American auto industry was extraordinarily competitive. A lot of people were competing uh, to, to become kind of the first to create the, the mass-marketed automobile. Carl Benz, who was of Mercedes-Benz fame, he actually built the first automobile in 1885. Daimler, of Daimler Chrysler fame, he created his first automobile in 1889. Ransom Olds, who's the father of Oldsmobile, he actually created Olds Motor Vehicle Company in 1902. There were 3,000 companies organized to produce automobiles in the early years of automobile making. And then Ford creates the Model T in 1908, and it explodes, right? The auto industry absolutely explodes. By 1917, there were 3.5 million cars in the United States. And uh, by the end of 1919, Ford was producing 50% of all cars in the United States. 50% of cars on the planet Earth were Model Ts. Why? Because this was a competitive industry, and competitive industries breed good product. Competitive industries, this is a time, by the way, in which there was great opening of trade worldwide. Competitive industries breed great product. And Ford had a competitive advantage. And that allowed him, by the way, not he, was, he didn't have a competitive advantage because he was disadvantaging his workers. He had a competitive advantage because he was paying his workers well. He was buying all the best workers. He was paying them, which was a lot of money at the time, $5 per day, 112 bucks per month. And they were only working five days per week, eight hours a day. So Trump, all that happened here is Ford wanted to retain his best workers. Capitalism worked, in other words. And then what happened is that the government started getting involved. So with the, with the Great Depression, automobile production dropped pretty dramatically. It went from 5.3 million per year to 2.4 million per year and then dropped again to 1.3 million per year. So really, the Depression really crushed the automobile industry. So what happened? The Democrats started running against the capitalist automobile industry. They started saying capitalism was the problem. Henry Ford was the problem. FDR ran against Henry Ford. FDR said the Republican campaign management and people like Henry Ford are guilty of spreading the gospel of fear. And then he tried to regulate the auto industry. He tried to help the unions so that they could run the auto industry into the ground. And then you know, by the, that, that ended up basically sinking Ford. FDR took the, the Ford-controlled share of the auto industry from 60% of the automobile market to 20%. And then the automobile industry decided that they were going to play with government. And so there was this, this sort of, the, so early on, highly competitive. Then the government stomps on them. And then Ford decides, and a lot of these other companies decide, that they are going to start working with the government. They're going to start working with the government. And so they started announcing that they were going to cut really good deals with the unions. They were, going to, they were going to cut all of these very rich deals with the unions. And the government, in return, the government was going to tariff. In return, the government was going to protect all of these automobile industries. Government had bloated the auto industry with subsidies and with tariffs. And the government was throwing billions of dollars into highway systems and into, and into protection of the auto industry. And so, they, so that was the deal, right? The deal they cut with government was we're going to have all of these very rich union contracts. You raise the tariffs. You cut off trade. You subsidize us, and everything will be okay. Well, only one problem. It can't last, right? In 1965, the U.S. imported 6% of its automobiles. Then all the other automobile companies, which were trying to compete for the American dollar, they started importing cars into the United States with loosened tariffs and also because their product was just better. And uh, by 1970... 15% of all automobiles in the United States were imported. Between 1970 and 1980, Detroit turned into a complete wasteland. All of the cars that were being bought in the United States were imported. And that was all because of regulation. That was all because of regulation and tariffs. It was all because of subsidies. All the things that were designed to help the auto industry were actually allowed to destroy the auto industry. Right? And, and so what, what's happened is, and that, that happens with every industry. Eventually, now the auto industry is doing better because they're back in competitive territory. Because it's been opened up, 
right? A lot of your Ford is not actually made in the United States. A lot of your Honda is. The globalized industry has created a better American auto industry. We make better cars and we produce more of them. That's thanks to competition. It's not thanks to bailouts and subsidies. Bailouts and subsidies are only necessary because of regulation and subsidies and tariffs. It's bad economic policy, even for the industries that it's seeking to help. And yet Trump is pursuing that. Republicans are going along with it. they, They shouldn't. They shouldn't. And then meanwhile, this is a crazy story. I mean, I hope that this one's just not true. That'd be nice if this were not true, because I hope it's not. The Washington Post... According to Philip Rucker and Karen Tumulty at the Washington Post, they are, they are reporting that Trump is actually selecting members of his cabinet based on how they look. Seriously, Chris Ruddy, who's the head of Newsmax, he said he likes people who present themselves very well. He's very impressed when somebody has a background of being good on TV because he thinks it's a very good medium for public policy. Don't forget, he's a showbiz guy. He was at the pinnacle of showbiz. He thinks about showbiz. He sees this as a business that relates to the public. He said the look might not necessarily be somebody who should be on the cover of GQ or Vanity Fair. It's about the look and the demeanor and the swagger. I mean, even when Trump announced Mike Pence, by the way, he said, the primary reason I wanted Mike, other than he looks very good, other than he's got an incredible family, incredible wife and family. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, what they say here in this article is actually fully, fully crazy. They actually say that he decided not to hire John Bolton that he decided that it would not be worthwhile hiring John Bolton as Secretary of State because of his mustache. This is a direct quote from the Washington Post. Several of Trump's associates said they thought John Bolton's brush-like mustache was one of the factors that handicapped the bombastic former U.N. ambassador in the sweepstakes for Secretary of State. Quote, Donald was not going to like that mustache, said one associate who spoke on the condition of anonymity, to speak frankly. I can't think of anyone that's really close to Donald that has a beard that he likes. Trump reportedly was drawn to Tillerson and Mitt Romney for sex state because of their presence and the way they command a room when they walk in. People close to Trump says he's been eager to appoint a telegenic woman as press secretary or in some other public-facing role in the White House because he thinks it would attract viewers and help inoculate him from the charges of sexism that trailed his presidential campaign. His first choice was Kellyanne Conway, who, by the way, was granted the position of counselor. She's now counselor to the president today, which she deserves. She's done a good job with the Trump campaign, despite the fact that... uh, you know, she was uh, sort of, she was in the pay of the Mercers. Now she is, uh, she, she did a great job. She, she deserves it, obviously. Meanwhile, uh, Donald Trump has now met with uh, Carlos Slim. So he met with this, this billionaire, this Mexican billionaire he was ripping during the campaign, Carlos Slim. And a lot of people were up in arms about it. He treated that Carlos Slim is a fantastic guy. Well, now we know why he met with Carlos Slim. And this is not good news if you're somebody who actually cares about Drain the Swamp stuff. He met with Carlos Slim because his good friend, Corey Lewandowski, is just a delightful fellow. Corey Lewandowski has started a lobbying firm. And that lobbying firm, guess who's one of their prospective clients is? You guessed it. It's Carlos Slim. Yay. So Corey Lewandowski starts a lobbying firm to push for Trump's interests, and he wants Trump to meet with Carlos Slim. And look at that. There he is, meeting with Carlos Slim. So it's not exactly the Clinton Foundation being given charity in order to broker meetings with Hillary Clinton, but it is Corey Lewandowski getting paid in order to broker a meeting with Donald Trump. And that ain't great. That ain't great. According to Politico, Barry Bennett, who on Wednesday unveiled a new lobbying firm with Lewandowski, confirmed to Politico Lewandowski traveled to Mexico City this month to meet with Slim, and he arranged the subsequent sit-down with Trump. The meeting occurred about 10 days after Lewandowski's visit with Slim. And uh, as Politico says, this this sort of undermines the drain the swamp routine. Lewandowski himself said, basically, we're done with drain the swamp. We're not going to pay attention to that anymore. Here's Lewandowski. 
think if you had to uh, put them in a chronological order, drain the swamp is probably somewhere down the bottom as opposed to getting tax reform done, making sure middle class people have more jobs, the, you know, making sure we're renegotiating our bad trade deals, ensuring that we're fixing Obamacare, uh, repairing and replacing that or replacing that and, and putting in something new. I think at the end of the day, it's about the economy. So draining the swamp is a larger narrative, but what it's really about is putting people back to work. Ah, so drain the swamp is – it's funny how a lot of these slogans just went by the wayside, huh? Remember, lock her up. And people chanting passionately, lock her up, lock her up. And then later Trump came out and he said, you know, I think that it's important now that we, that we comfort her. I don't remember that chant. I remember people going, comfort her, comfort her. And I remember people chanting, drain the swamp. Remember, drain the swamp, not drain the, not. Lewandowski broker a meeting with Carlos Slim. Let's make sure that all of the advisors have access to the president for pay. It's a little bit of a long chant, I'll grant you that, but. I don't remember that rant so much. Trump knows that this is bad press, by the way. Here's what Donald Trump tweeted about this. He said, someone incorrectly stated that the phrase drain the swamp was no longer being used by me. Actually, we will always be trying to DTS. So I like, number one, that, that it's now an acronym. Second of all, the person who said that the phrase drain the swamp was no longer used by Trump was Newt Gingrich, who said that Donald Trump had said that to him. So who do you believe? <laughs> Meanwhile, Kellyanne Conway was on CNN, and she was defending the fact that Donald Jr., his, his, he runs a charity, Donald Jr. does, and uh, Donald Jr. was doing a fundraiser where he was basically saying, you give us a million dollars and we'll broker a meeting with daddy. Well, that's kind of suspicious given the fact that Clinton Foundation did exactly the same thing. Clinton Foundation said, you give Clinton Foundation a lot of money, and we'll make sure that, that you get a meeting with Hillary. Chris Cuomo, who's normally an idiot but asks actually some pretty good questions here, Chris Cuomo is talking to Kellyanne Conway about this, and watch Kellyanne Conway spin like a dreidel of that solicitation of what was going on and the son's involvement. Look, they're all going to do whatever they need to do under the law to comply with uh, what's our major changes to their family and to their family's business and certainly to their father's status as president of the United States. But I think we should go back and look at what Don Jr. and Eric have done and wanted to continue to do, which is raise money for charities. The Eric Trump Foundation is 10 it has done enormously great work in many different corners. It's the same thing the Clinton people. people said when they were defending their allegations of pay for play. They were selling off a million dollar trip to hunt with the boys and hang out with the president. That sounds like paying for access. I don't know how they're the same, how that's the same as, as Bill Clinton giving a million dollar speech in Russia and then Hillary Clinton, while Secretary of State, turning around and giving 20% of the U.S. uranium interest away a little bit different it's paying very, very money different. to get to power Sorry, very very different than very different than wait, worrying about quote friends of william jefferson clinton getting the contracts after haiti suffers a devastating hurricane in 2010 very different than allowing foreign governments to come into the state department like it's some concierge for money so paying a million dollars to hang out with the president's okay I didn't say that. What I, I'm well, I know you're, you're, you're not answering it. You're answering Clinton it by Foundation. going after the Clintons. I'm no, saying, you mentioned, what's your answer? You mentioned the Clinton Foundation. You said it was the same. I'm telling you, it is absolutely not the I'm same. I'm saying you you're like giving the, answer, the same Chris. defense that they gave when you made the allegations no. about the Clintons. They said, we do lots of great work. We took these meetings. There's never been a direct connection between what she did at the state and what was going on at the foundation. You're now saying basically the same thing. 
And actually, I, I hate to say this about Chris Cuomo, but he's actually right here. I hate to say that about Chris Cuomo. That's the, look, if you want Trump to do well, he needs to cut this stuff off. And actually, Don Jr. is. Don Jr. says that they're no longer going to be involved. Uh, they're, they're killing that, that particular deal. Um, but it does show you the temptation here. And again, Kellyanne Conway's defense here is really, really weak tea. Okay, time for some stuff I like and then some things that I hate. So, things I like. Uh, what I uh, uh, last night, uh, if I look a little tired, it's because I am. I had uh, seven hours of broadcast time yesterday, uh, and then we and then uh, we went to see Rogue One. So we saw Star Wars, the the, the new Rogue One uh, movie, and uh, here's a little bit of the of the preview, and then I'll talk about what I liked about it. The world is coming undone. Imperial flags rain across the galaxy. Can you be trusted without your shackles? Let's just get this over with, shall we? We have a mission for you. A major weapons test is imminent. We need to know how to destroy it. If you're really doing this, I want to help. I've been recruiting for the rebellion for a long time. We destroyed our home. I fight the empire now. I fear nothing. All is as the force wills it. The captain says you are a friend. I will not kill you. Thanks. Uh, you don't have to watch the whole preview, but it's, 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 you know, it's visually beautiful. I mean, number one, it's, it's a visually beautiful movie, um, but it's, it's such a different Star Wars movie. So number one, uh, you don't get to bring your kids under what, maybe 13 guys, you think? Ten, you think 10? I, I think it's, I don't know. I, I would say that, like, I would say the original Star Wars movies, you have to maybe seven or eight to see. But it's at least a few years until you can, more years until you can see this one. It's not, it's not the same mode. It just isn't. Uh, and that's what's so shocking about it is the first two, if you went in expecting a traditional Star Wars film where it's kind of heroes versus baddies and everything ends up great and everything's going to be cool. And that's, that's it. Remember, this is a prequel to episode four. So episode four is the first original Star Wars movie in the, in the, in the order in which they came out, the 1977 flick. And this whole movie is based on that one line that happens in episode four where, this where this lady is explaining that they're about to go in and they're going to blow up the Death Star and they have the plans to the Death Star and they said many people many good people died to get these plans that's what this movie is this movie is the many good people died to get this this plans that's that's this movie uh, and it's I, I will say the first two thirds for me uh, was a little bit slow uh, it didn't it didn't build too much but then about. Two-thirds of the way through, it takes off like a bat out of hell. All of a sudden, the, the movie really starts working. Uh, it kicks into high gear. Uh, and it, it does, you know, it, it does hit on a different note than, than a lot of the other Star Wars films. Most of the other Star Wars films are a lot more fantasy. This is a lot more sci-fi, right? A lot, a lot of the Star Wars films are kind of fantasy because people make decisions that you wouldn't actually make in, in real life because we have to make sure that the main characters' lives are, are preserved and everything. In this, like nobody, in, in, the, in the original Star Wars trilogy... Nobody who's a main character, the only main character who actually dies in the original Star Wars trilogy is Obi-Wan, right? Even, even Han Solo isn't killed by the Empire. They encase him in carbonite for no apparent reason, right? They could kill him at the end of Empire and be no worse off. But they keep him alive instead because they have to test the carbonite thingy. But in any case, 
this this movie is a lot more about what does the ordinary person do? Not the Jedi, not the special Skywalkers, not the people who are the royal family, not the not Darth Vader, not the Emperor, the normal soldier. What's it like for the normal soldier in Star Wars world? And that's that's basically what Rogue One is about. And it's it's quite good. It's quite good. The, the again the first two thirds uh, were a little slow for me and meandered a little bit, and I was kind of wondering where it was going. And then the last third really really works, and the ending really works. So, uh, Rogue One, check it out this weekend if you haven't seen it. Uh, I, I do think that it is worth a watch. And, and you know what? It's nice to have a, a major movie now that doesn't have some sort of attempted political sucker punch. That's nice. I didn't see any political sucker punch uh, in this particular one. The only thing that I will say is it, it's interesting that, you know, the main character is is woman, obviously, uh, and there is no real inkling of romance for the entire film. Uh, and I know that that Hollywood is trying to create more female heroines, and she is a good female heroine. She is. She's she's not a Mary Jane. She's not somebody who just has like this unbelievable skill set for no reason. She's not Ray from the from the J.J. Abrams new Star Wars flick, where for no reason at all she's just so good with the Force that she's defeating Sith lords in battle after picking up a star a lightsaber. Now, like you, you got the guy who's been trained for his whole life, and she picks up the lightsaber, and boom, she's winning battles. It's not that. Um, but uh, it it. I, I, you know, I like the, the female lead in this one is a lot better than, than Ray is in, in Star Wars. It makes a lot more sense. Okay, time for some things that I hate. Okay, so uh, Harry Reid is leaving. Thank God, thank God. Harry Reid, the senator from, from Nevada. Uh, terrible, terrible person. Uh, and he is, uh, and he was one, he's the guy who in 2012, he lied and he said that that um, Mitt Romney had not paid taxes in years and years and years, that he was a, a tax fraudster. And it turned out that wasn't true at all. Mitt Romney paid an effective 14% tax rate, paid a lot of capital gains tax. Uh, and Harry Reid was asked about this. Here was his response. He says, do you think that the, the brazen lie that he told about Mitt Romney not paying his taxes has in any way contributed to the fake news that we now find ourselves in? First, first of all, Ryan, there were no brazen lies. What I said is the truth. Mitt Romney had refused and has still refused to show us his tax returns. He gave us the main part of two tax returns. These were when he's running for president. That's not a true sign of what he had done. Remember, uh, I guess the new uh, plan that we have to look at is Donald Trump, who shows us nothing. But prior to Trump, it was standard procedure going back many, many decades that presidential candidates would give us 10 years of their tax returns. Mitt Romney has never done that. And it so is. there's no According to Harry Reid, and now virtually everyone in politics, lies in service of the higher goal are totally fine. He says he didn't lie when he said Mitt Romney paid no taxes. Even though Mitt Romney paid no taxes, it was effective, and it got done what he needed to get done. That is the death of politics, and it's quite disgusting. Kellyanne Conway, uh, she said something else here, and, I'm, and I think it's actually very funny, but I think there's a deeper point that I really am not particularly fond of here. Here's Kellyanne Conway. She was asked about, you know, this, a lot of women get asked this. You know, you have four children. How are you going to balance having four kids with working as the counselor to the president? We were talking with Juan Williams earlier, and he was questioning, well, Kellyanne has four kids. How is she going to do it? He got creamed on Twitter. Uh, everybody on Twitter was saying, why? A woman with four kids can't do it, and, and, and a man can't. So what? That she's going to be working 24-7. Well, I, would, I would say that I don't play golf, and I don't have a mistress. So I have a lot of time that a lot of these other men don't. Um, I see people on the weekend. They spend an awful lot of time um, you know, with their golf games, and that's their right, but uh, the kids will, they'll be with me. We live in the same house, and they come first. 
First of all, okay, so a couple of things here. It's a funny line that she doesn't golf and she doesn't have a mistress. And I'm not sure who she's referring to there, but it's kind of a burn on some unnamed person who clearly she's thinking about when she says that a person has a mistress and is and it's taking up their time. Um, but there is this, this weird idea that has been promulgated. I, I'm a big, let me put it this way. I'm a big advocate of the idea that women who want to work should be able to work, that women should be able to make the choices that they want to make. But I'm also a big advocate of the idea that reality exists. And that there are balances that have to be drawn. It is not sexist to say a woman who has four children, does she want to spend more time with her children than a man? Because typically speaking, women do want to spend more time with their children with, with their children than, than a man does. That's just the way the world... And I'm speaking to somebody, by the way, who grew up in a house where there were four kids, and my mom worked full-time, and my dad was home with the kids. Right. So this is not coming from a place of women have to be in the home, and men can never... Men are not responsible for... Ch-. It's not that at all. All I'm suggesting is that Typically speaking, women like spending more time with the kids than men do. Men like working more. Okay, And so it's not totally unnatural to ask a question, which is, if a woman has a lot of kids, is she willing to draw that balance? And that's an honest question that I think a lot of women have to ask themselves when they're deciding how they want to structure their lives. Like my wife, who is a doctor. right? We have two children. And my wife has structured her life around what kind of work-life balance she wants to draw. We all do. But I don't think there's any question at all that women tend to make greater sacrifices for their kids than men do. Women tend to, and th- to women's credit, they tend to want to be home more with the kids. They want to attend every, they, they want to attend every recital. They want to be there for all the important events in their kids' lives. And dads are work addicted. So again, I, I think that one of the mistakes here is is not to, to to suggest that Juan Williams even asking the question is some sort of inherently sexist, terrible thing. I think that's ridiculous. I understand that if, if the implication was that no woman is capable of doing this, then that's silly, obviously, because women are fully capable of doing all of these kinds of things. But to say, is this the work-life balance that this woman wants to draw? I don't think that that's the craziest thing in the world at all. And she gets to make the choice that she wants to make. But I think that the movies and the media, they lie to women when they say you can have everything. You can't have everything. No one can have everything. There are only so many hours in a day. There are only so many minutes you can divvy up. And people have to make decisions about that. My wife, who's a brilliant woman... The kind of doctor she is was in part decided by the kind of lifestyle she wanted to lead. She could have been a surgeon, easily. She's a UCLA med school grad, right? But she decided she wanted to go into family medicine because she wants to spend more time at home with the kids. Everybody makes these decisions. Kellyanne Conway is certainly entitled to make the decision of her choice, but to suggest that, that women don't make different decisions from men on average and that even asking the question is silly, that's, that's, that's kind of ridiculous to me. I forgot, by the way, one thing that I like. Uh, my good friend uh, Stephen Crowder was waterboarded yesterday. And I loved it. It was great. Um, and uh, he was waterboarded because he was raising, uh, he was trying to get subscriptions to CRTV, and he, he hit, I think, 2,000 subscriptions. And so he was waterboarded yesterday. We have a little bit of tape of it. Um, and, uh, and then at the very end, after Stephen was waterboarded, he took it like a man, by the way. And I, I, I do get the, the weird feeling from Stephen that he desperately wanted to be waterboarded, and he was just looking for an excuse. Because after they put him under, they put him under like five more times. And he, I mean, man, he took it, he, he went for 23 seconds being waterboarded. 23 seconds. That's a long time being waterboarded. Now you look at Christopher Hitchens, it was like seven seconds. Crowder went for 23. Good for him. But at the very end, they dropped some balloons. And, uh, and some people noticed something that I was doing in the background uh, when the balloons were dropped after the waterboarding. And uh, here's what I was doing in the background and see if you can spot the reference. Oh, it's, it's being gotten by our stellar production team. All right, there it is. See, what am I doing there? Well, it's a reference to... 
<laughs> so if you're wondering what the feedback was, that's <laughs> that was the uh, that was the gag. So um, that's that's what was going on, and you can see Stephen in the foreground being tortured. So it was, it was a wonderful time was had by all, and congratulations to Stephen on setting a new world record for both uh, for for both. Uh, intrepid, intrepid nature and stupidity. Uh, all right, time for a little bit of, uh, of Bible talk. So uh, every week, the Jews read a different portion of the Bible. So uh, first, Hanukkah is coming up. It's happening on Saturday night. Uh, the, if you want the quick story of Hanukkah, what it's actually about, you can go over to dailywire.com right now. Uh, a writer, a contributor for us named Elliot Hamilton has a really good summation of what Hanukkah is about. Hanukkah is not about lighting a menorah. It really isn't. That's actually like the least of the things that happened on Hanukkah. You know, with our, with our traditional... Jew materials that we have in our Protocols of Elders of Zion meeting. That's, that's actually kind of the least of, of what it is. What Hanukkah was actually about was an actual military rebellion against Greek governance. Uh, and it was also a civil war between religious Jews and secular Jews, essentially. Uh, and it was a celebration of the idea that the temple was retaken by the religious Jews and then the menorah was lit. That's, that's really what it was about. Uh, for folks who are wondering what the dreidel is all about, um, a bit of Jewish education here, uh, what the dreidel is all about. So the reason that people play dreidel on Hanukkah is because they are the, the, the idea was that when Jews were planning their various military actions and they wanted to and they wanted the, the Greeks not to know what they were doing, if a Greek person would walk in and see a bunch of men crowded around a table looking at maps, they might get suspicious. So whenever somebody would walk in, they'd get rid of the map and they'd immediately start playing dreidel, which was sort of an ancient gambling game. So the way that the game works, if you want to play with your friends, uh, it ain't it ain't Texas Hold'em, but it, it's not bad. Uh, the, 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 the way that it works is you spin the dreidel, there are four letters uh, on the on the dreidel. There's a nun, there's a shin, there's a hay, and there's a gimel. Right? Okay, so the nun means that if you if you roll it and it comes up this, this means that you don't get anything from the pot. Everybody puts a little bit of money into the pot. Uh, if you get a nun, nobody you, you don't take anything from the pot. If you get a shin, you have to make an additional contribution to the pot. If you get a hay, you take half the pot, and if you get a gimel. You take the whole thing. That's how the game is played. It's why little children can play it. A very simple game. And what it stands for, the letters stand for, is Nes Gadol Hayasham. Nes Gadol Hayasham. And what that means is a great miracle happened here. In Israel, they actually use different letters on their dreidel. At the, instead of the shin, they have a pay because it's Nes Gadol Hayapo, meaning a great miracle happened here. So that's kind of a cool thing. And there is your brief primer on Hanukkah. Okay, so every week we do read a bit of the, uh, a bit of the Old Testament. Uh, we read a different portion. And this week's portion comes courtesy of the book of Genesis. Uh, it's called Vayeshev. This is the portion where Joseph gets sold by his brothers. And so one of the questions that's asked is, how could this happen, right? These are all supposed to be great people. These are the leaders of tribes. And you're talking about Jacob, the founder of the, of the Jewish people. And you're talking about Joseph, who ends up being viceroy of Egypt. How could all these great people, how could a bunch of brothers, like, would you take your sibling and throw them in a pit and then sell them into slavery? Is that something you'd be up for? Probably not. Well, the, well, maybe. I don't know. It depends on yourself. But most people, probably not. So, the, so this is the section where they do it in, uh, in Genesis. This is Genesis 37, 31. And it says, they took Joseph's coat. This is after he's been sold into slavery. They, they drop in the pit. They leave. When they come back, he's been sold into slavery because they meant to kill him. And one of their brothers said, you know, I'm going to sell him into slavery rather than, rather than letting them kill him. It says, they took Joseph's coat, they slaughtered a kid, they dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the fine woolen coat and they brought it to their father and they said, we found this. Now recognize whether it is your son's coat or not. He recognized it and he said, it is my son's coat. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn up. And Jacob rent his garments and he put his sackcloths on his loins and he mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to console him, but he refused to be consoled for he said, because 
will descend on account of my son as a mourner to the grave, and his father wept for him. Okay, so here's the important thing, and this is uh, an insight that my father had, and it's a really great insight. And it goes to the idea that women make a lot of decisions that are much more important for the future of humanity than men do. Uh, the, if you, you recall in the Bible that there are, that there are actually several matriarchs, right? There is, at this point, there's, a, there's Rachel and Leah, are the, Rachel and Leah are the wives of, um, are, are the wives of, um, of Joseph, um, and, um, and they each have a bunch of children, right, and they're rivals, and they're rivals, and they're, they're some other wives, right, Bilhah and Zilpah, their handmaidens are also wives of Jacob's, and, uh, but, the, but the two big ones here are Rachel and Leah for purposes of this conversation. Leah is the one who's scorned by Jacob. She's the one who, who Jacob doesn't love as much. She's the one who's constantly feeling kind of down in the dumps. She has most of the kids. Uh, Rachel only has two kids. She only has Benjamin and, jo- and uh, Joseph, uh, but Leah has a bunch of the kids, and so what happened to tear the family apart? What really happened here? There's obviously a lot of, of unsolved issues here, a lot of family drama here. What happened? Leah died. So it's never said in the actual Torah. It doesn't actually say where Leah dies in the Torah. It says where Rachel dies, but it never says where Leah dies in the Torah. How do we know she's dead? Because when you get to verse 35, right, Joseph is, is gone. He thinks he's dead, and it says his sons and his daughters arose to console him. Right, so where's his wife? Where's Leah? Leah died. The point is that her absence, her presence is what held everything together. She was able to say to her sons, keep it in line, boys. You know, I know that you feel like you're, you're seen as second-class citizens by your dad. I know that you really don't like Joseph particularly much. But you're all brothers, and you need to keep this stuff in line because we're all one family, and we, all need to, and we all need to keep it together here. She dies, and immediately things go to hell in a handbasket. Immediately. And that demonstrates the massive impact of women in the Old Testament and, and throughout human history. So whenever people suggest that work is the most important thing that women do? Uh, no, it, it's not, because the most important thing men do also is not work. It's, it's the upbringing of your children, and the, the story of the conflict between the brothers really is a story of the greatness of Leah and the shortcomings of, of Jacob as a father. I mean, really, because the fact is that Jacob helps alienate some of his sons from his other sons because of his, because of his treatment of his sons. That's why it's so important to have major figures like Leah uh, who are around to, to hold everything together. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's show. Tomorrow, we'll be back for our final pre-Christmas episode, and I think our final pre-New Year's episode, right, guys? I don't think we're broadcasting next week. So tomorrow is it, so tomorrow is it until, the, until the New Year. So, we will, so we'll sum up the year, and we will wish you all a Merry Christmas, and we'll do a final 2016 mailbag, the final mailbag. So subscribe now if you haven't at dailywire.com. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. <laughs> Did you know that mRNA vaccines are approved for use in pigs in the United States? Not to mention 85% of the beef sold in your local grocery store is imported. In fact, over 5 billion pounds of meat was imported just last year. There's so much mystery surrounding our meat, which is why I'm so grateful for my Good Rancher subscription. I know that I don't have to worry about imported meat or unknown vaccines in the food that I feed my family. Good Ranchers is saying mRNO to mRNA by offering a free 10-pound Easter ham with any subscription. Unlike the pork from the grocery store, Good Ranchers ham is guaranteed 100% free from mRNA vaccines. This is a $119 value, absolutely free with code DAILYWIRE. Go to GoodRanchers.com and say mRNO to mRNA by subscribing today. You have a right to know exactly what's in your food, and Good Ranchers is dedicated to protecting that right and providing your family with the best meat in America, free from any unknown and potentially harmful additives. Go to GoodRanchers.com and subscribe to any of their boxes and use code DAILYWIRE at checkout. 
Every subscription will come with a free Heritage Ham, $25 off, and Good Ranchers Lifetime Quality Commitment. That's GoodRanchers.com, code DailyWire.